Good morning, everyone. So it's good to be here again and to see many familiar faces and some unfamiliar faces as well. And uh, grateful for the opportunity to share God's word with you. It's a, a long passage, but a, a, great, a great story of God's work. Can we put this up a little bit? Thanks, James. I chose this passage to speak on because, as you know, it's getting close to the Easter season, and this event happened just before that, that time. So I thought it'd be a good way to transition into the Easter season, which is Palm Sunday, uh, next Sunday. So imagine a news story of a 40-year-old woman who has been born blind, and she was told by a well-known religious miracle worker to go wash her eyes in a mountain stream. And she came back and she could see. Amazing. And the news report went on to mention that the same, this well-known religious miracle worker went to the funeral of a good friend of his. And much to everyone's great shock, he said to the, his friend there in the coffin, arise, get up and live again. And sure enough, he came to life and ended up having lunch there at his own memorial service. Amazing. There would certainly be a lot of shock and surprise and a big news story about an event like that. And of course, the story I just shared with you is not true, but there is a, tr a story, and it's a true story, that happened, we will look at this morning. You remember in John 9, actually the last time I was here and spoke, I actually preached on John 9, the story of the healing of the blind man. You might, some of you might remember that. And that obviously caused great attention and opposition because Jesus did this healing of the blind man on the Sabbath. But in this chapter, chapter 11, Jesus brings to a climax the seventh and the final miraculous uh, miracle that he did by raising a dead man, his friend Lazarus. You can see here, there might be on the next slide, about the different uh, uh, signs. So the, it, this is actually, if you study the book of John, and uh, there are the seven signs, and they call it the book of signs, the first part. So the first 11 cha chapters are called the book of signs. And there, we also have in this chapter the fifth of the seven I am statements. Jesus says several of them, right? Of the different I am, I think the next slide, right? The different statements. So here we have, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate of the sheep, I am the good shepherd. And here we have the fifth one, I am the resurrection and the life. So as a good author, John uses this structure of the signs and of the of this I am statements. And here we see Jesus also, or John, using this uh, technique, and you might have learned this in school, when you studied novels, of foreshadowing. And uh, by healing, I mean, by raising Lazarus from the dead, he foreshadows his own resurrection, which was going to take place in the future. Well, this resurrection miracle took place in the village of Bethany, 
which was just around two miles or a couple of kilometers outside of the city of Jerusalem. You can see there on the map. Now, this certainly is a great story, just as a story itself, and we can enter into some of the emotions of this story, and there's a lot of range of emotions. There's this, the emotion of courage and apprehension and fear, of disappointment, grief, sorrow, love, doubt, fear, anger, disbelief, astonishment, and joy. And this morning, I'd like to focus on a few of the topics uh, that this story brings out. The first topic I'd like to talk about is the delays of God. We note that Jesus heard about his friend Lazarus' sickness, but he purposely delays going and healing him. We observe that God's delays are inevitable. They're going to happen. And they're certainly part of the biblical record. You recall Abraham. He was promised that he and his wife Sarah would have a child, and they waited decades, decades for that to happen. And then his own son, Isaac, also waited for decades for him and Rebekah before they were able to have children. We recall Joseph was promised by God in a dream that he would be a ruler, and yet he waited many years and had to endure being sold into slavery, ending up thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. And there he waited for a long time before God <coughs> came through to him, for him. And there are many examples in the Bible where people had to wait. And likely from your own life as well. And there have been and likely will be more delays in the future that you will experience. Delays are inevitable. We also note that God's delays don't contradict his love. We may likely think the opposite. We may think that God has forgotten us. He's abandoned us. God is not listening to us. We may doubt or become angry with God. As Martha, she was upset with Jesus. Where, is, where are you, Jesus, when I needed you? After all these years, I followed you and I've served you. I've believed in you. And now I need you to help my brother, Lazarus. And where are you? Philip Yancey wrote a book called Disappointed with God. And he has, shares many chapters there of how people have been disappointed with God. And I think, if we're honest, we would all be able to write a chapter or two of a book like that, Disappointed with God. Perhaps we've experienced a delay in getting employment or having a strained relationship healed, like we heard even this morning in the prayer requests, or in having a child, or in a child or a loved one who's hurting themselves by making wrong decisions. Or we are waiting for a suffering person to be healed. And we don't understand why. And we don't like waiting for an answer. And we pray and we ask God to show up and do something. But our prayers are not answered. However, we can still be assured of God's love and ultimate goodness. My brother, a few weeks ago, uh, underwent cancer surgery. And he's... And his wife is awaiting his, her second cancer operation and radiation treatment following that. 
And he wrote an email this week to our family, and he said this, just going to quote my, my brother, who quotes Max Lucado. So he said, I read recently from Grace for the Moment by Max Lucado. That was an encouragement to me. When a friend told Jesus of the illness of Lazarus, he said, Lord, the one you love is sick. He doesn't base his appeal on the imperfect love of the one in need, but on the perfect love of the Savior. He doesn't say, the one who loves you is sick. He says, the one you love is sick. The power of the prayer, in other words, does not depend on the one who makes the prayer, but on the one who hears the prayer. We can and must repeat the phrase in many ways. The one who you love is tired, sad, hungry, lonely, sick, fearful, or depressed. The words of the prayer may vary, but the response never changes. The Savior hears the prayer. Another illustration of God's care is that of St. Augustine, who is one of the church fathers, and he is called the Son of Tears because his mother prayed for him for nine years with lots of tears before he came to believe in Jesus Christ. We may pray for four days. We may pray for four months or four years or 40 years without having a positive answer to our prayers. I know I've been waiting for 20 years to have God answer some of my prayers. But even though our heart's longings and answers to our prayers are delayed, we can still be assured that God hears us. He knows our situation, he loves us, and he is with us. The third point in relation to, to God's delays is that God's delays are purposeful and are not final. It's not easy to wait. Just, just ask a young child awaiting a birthday party. My grandson is turning three soon, and he's very excited about his birthday party. Or a young person waiting the results of an application to enter university. Or an adult waiting for a medical test. The results back. You know what? It's not easy to wait. It's no fun. And sometimes waiting is the hardest thing to do. Waiting takes patience and trust. Trust, two important virtues that are important for our own spiritual health. It is during these times of waiting that God wants to teach us, to test us and stretch us. This we can see in the life of Joseph that we noted before, when he was waiting on God. And we see here that there is a purpose. In verse 4 of chapter 11, Jesus says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This was the purpose. And another purpose is stated in verse 15. Jesus says, So that you will believe. That was God's purpose. There is a reason for God's delays, although we may never know. We may never understand. Job never actually knew what was going on in his suffering. We can, however, be assured that God has not forgotten us, nor stopped loving us, but rather waits to accomplish his purposes. God's timing is not easy to understand or accept, 
but it is God's, part of God's plan. God's purpose is not to make us happy, but to be holy. So God allows things in our lives such as suffering to sanctify us and make us more like himself and ultimately to bring glory to God. We recall what Jesus said regarding the blind man's healing in, in chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus said, this happened, his blindness, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Our natural response to suffering is to resist it and perhaps blame God. I'm sure many of you have thought about that or have friends who maybe have abandoned their faith in God because they blame God for some pain or suffering in their lives. Martha also was tempted to do this and to blame Jesus. Why weren't you here when I needed you? But rather another response is to trust in Jesus and to strengthen our faith. You know the story of Joni Erickson Tata, the paraplegic lady who became that way as a teenager and has been in a wheelchair ever since then. She said this, I do not care if I am confined to this wheelchair, provided from it that I can bring glory to God. Jesus eventually did come through for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, even though at a different time and a different way than was expected. Often in our lives, God turns up in different ways and places and times. We learn that even in the midst of God's delays, God is worthy of our trust. Another point that we can see in this passage is committed faith. Often throughout the Gospels, we picture that the disciples are pictured as kind of ignorant. They're not really getting this whole thing about Jesus. They are fearful. They are weak. But here we see, actually, in verse 16, we see a lot of courage and faith. Thomas says, Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Pretty courageous statement, isn't it? Following Jesus is a call to die. Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, If anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, during the Second World War, is a pastor in Germany who ended up being killed because of his faith. He said, when he wrote, When Jesus calls a person to follow him, he bids him Come and die. There are many Christians in the world who are being persecuted for their faith. Some are in prison. Some have been killed. We can hear many stories. In fact, just this last week, I read of a pastor in Russia who was speaking out against the war, and he has been imprisoned for his stand. Believers all over the world are suffering for their faith. Yes, we need to be committed to our faith and to following Jesus, even even to the point of death. Another point that we see here is Jesus' empathy, his compassion and his love for us. In verse 33 to verse 35, it talks about Jesus grieving. And the shortest verse in the Bible is right there, right? Verse 35. If you ever want to memorize scripture, that's a good one to start with, right? It's nice and short and sweet. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. 
It's very short, but it's a very profound and powerful verse. Jesus understands and enters into the suffering and the grief of his friends and ours as well. As a fully human, Jesus knows, he experiences the things that we experience. He knows our grief, he knows our pain, our sorrow. Jesus is actually described in Isaiah 53 verse 7 as a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. Another important point that we see here is Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. We noted that Jesus waited for four days. So it was like in the fifth day that Jesus finally shows up in Bethany. And this is significant because it was believed at that time that the spirit stayed around for four days trying to re-enter the body and then left when the spirit saw that the body was decomposing. So Jesus waited purposely for the fifth day in order to convince everyone that Lazarus was truly dead. The greater the challenge, the greater the miracle, the greater the glory, and the greater the glory, the greater the faith. Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Not only are these Jesus' words, but he shows it through his actions. He didn't just say he is the resurrection and the life. He proved it. John Stott has this quote that says, The life Jesus gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection, the life of the deathless God himself. John teaches throughout this book, one of the themes of John actually is the theme of life. And for John, eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts when you believe in Jesus. John records that Jesus promises the abundant life. He promises eternal life. And this is the great hope of Christianity. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. No other religious leader claims to have the power over death. But Jesus has raised people from the dead. In the gospel, there's three resurrections that he performs. Lazarus being the last one. And then there's also his own resurrection. And this gives believers much comfort and much hope that we will live forever with God in eternity. There's an interesting word here I just wanted to highlight for a moment. And that is in verse 34. Uh, 33 and verse 38 where it says that Jesus uh, actually for yeah verse 38 38 where it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit the act the word in Greek actually talks about he's deeply moved with anger why was Jesus so angry it wasn't just because of their lack of faith or a false mourning no Jesus was angry at death and the devil. Jesus felt the evil and the pain of death. He saw it as a violent tyranny, and so he was angry. There's a quote by John Stott here. He says, 
in a commentary in Bible Teacher, he says, in Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of mankind. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, Satan, who has the power of death, and who, and who he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage. And John Calvin writes, Jesus advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for the conflict. I can picture like a movie scene, right? Of Jesus entering that scene and he comes towards the grave and he speaks those words and Jesus takes down and overcomes all the evil powers. The enemies of the devil and death have been defeated. Christ has truly released all humanity from the binds that oppress even the power of death. As we enter this time of Easter, we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and Satan and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. Jesus has overcome death. One commentator makes this observation. We note that Jesus calls Lazarus by name. He says, Lazarus, come out. And he did that because if he didn't, all the dead people in that tomb would have come back to life. But we note here a prophecy actually fulfilled in, in chapter 5. And I'm just going to read here. If you have your Bibles, you can flip to it quickly. Chapter 5, verses 24. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in me who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come, this is foreshadowing, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There is a promise in Scripture that there is a resurrection of both, the, of both believers and non-believers. For believers, it is a chance to celebrate. But for unbelievers, following the resurrection, it is a time of judgment and eternal punishment. Well, we notice the reaction of the people. And it was a mixed reaction. One of the themes in John is Belief. You need to believe in Jesus. He says, I write, for the, I write to you these things so that you will believe in Jesus. And many believed, it says right there, that many people believed in Jesus, but others didn't. They rejected Jesus. They went off and they told the Pharisees, guess what Jesus did now? And they were hostile towards Jesus. Jesus divides people. And he says that he will. Some will believe in me and some won't. It will even divide families. And we see this in our societies as well. And when, when they went and told the Pharisees what had happened, 
Jesus' fate was sealed. The leaders felt so threatened by Jesus' popularity and influence that they determined to kill him. The council feared a mass movement that would jeopardize their own position as a nation and their own political careers. They thought, we've got to get rid of this guy, Jesus. Their decision to kill Jesus was out of envy and fear. And there's some irony there when they say that Jesus dies for the nation and for all. He says, one man must die for the many. But yes, Jesus tastes death for us so that we may experience resurrected life. The last point I want to just observe is that of Martha's faith. We see in verse 21, in verse 21, she has a little bit, she has the confidence of faith. Lord Jesus, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She had faith that Jesus could cure and heal her brother. And then she has a bit of a spark of faith in verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Did she have that faith that Jesus could actually raise her brother from the dead? I think she had a little bit of faith there. But then she, her faith stumbled a little bit when Jesus said, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She says, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says that statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And then she has a confession of faith, a beautiful confession of faith. She says, yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. This is the confession of a true believer, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It is this faith that allows us entrance into God's family, in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And as God's children, we are heirs. And it, and it can also be added, the right to share in Jesus' resurrection and in eternal life. So we learn from Martha that faith is not static and unchanged but rather as something that ebbs and flows and that can grow. And I trust that your faith will grow and develop even as Martha's faith did. So I want to just review a couple of things here as we, as we close. I've mentioned a couple of things, and as we go through this little review, I just want you to be able to, uh, afterwards, I'm just going to give a moment of silence for you to reflect on something that might have caught your attention and just to think about that and ponder it and ask God to make it real in your own life. So in review, we have seen that God's delays are a part of our lives, but they are for a reason. They are for God's glory and to develop, to develop and deepen our faith. Even in times of delay and suffering, we need to continue to trust in God's love and sovereignty and his promise that all things will work together for good for those who love him. Perhaps you are waiting for God to come through for you. Continue to trust in God's love for you. We also understand that Jesus, we also learn that Jesus understands our sorrow and he weeps with us. It is good to know that God is not some stoic in the sky, but someone who can understand and sympathize with our pain and sorrow. We have a friend in Jesus who weeps with us. We've also observed that following Jesus involves courage 
and total commitment even to the point of death. We also learn this magnificent truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We who have received Jesus as our Savior and Lord have a great and glorious hope. We do not need to fear death in the grave, for we are assured that we will be resurrected to live eternally with God and all the saints. And finally, Jesus is truly worthy of our faith, and our faith is meant to grow, even as Martha grew in her faith. We are to grow in our faith and worship Jesus, for he is truly the resurrection and the life. Let's just conclude with a moment of silent prayer. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful story. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life, and we just worship you. And as we go into the time of celebrating, we just reflect on that truth. In the name of Jesus, who makes it all possible, amen.